Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 301, An Ounce of Prevention, recorded September 3rd, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks, that you can listen to anytime and not on the radio. Um... My name is Mark, sometimes called the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and joining me this week, as they always do, the people you're really here to listen to, let's be honest, are Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie-Janeer Wakeham. Welcome back, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the Faithful Opiites. I'm so glad you could join us again. And representing our metric listeners, one ounce is 28.3495 grams of prevention. (laughs) Does that uh, does that saying cross the ocean? An ounce of provision is worth a pound of cure. With your yeah. English root, surely you've heard that. Oh yeah, no, it it still it still holds water. Don't worry, that's yeah. good. Uh, I've got a Canadian friend, and we frequently ask each other, "Did that cross the border?" He'll be talking about some Canadian pop culture thing. I, I'm shaking my head. Oh, that didn't cross the border, huh? Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, it's interesting to see. Yeah, in your case, it's crossing the ocean. Oh yeah, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> I I do have an uncle Bob. No, oh, don't actually. There you go. See, no. I'm psychic. So it, was a, it was my grandfather's <laughs> brother. That makes him. It's my grandfather, but my great uncle. I never understood that. Um, but his name was Bob. <laughs> his brother's name was Gordon. That was my grandfather. And yeah, I don't I, think Gordon's your uncle has the same effect. Yeah. And then I knew a guy named Bob Gordon. So it was uh, you know that's how that all comes together. Six degrees. I met, of Ro- I met Robbie Gordon once. Does that count? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> And isn't there the Gordon Fisherman's commercial? So just to... That's Gorton, but nice try. Gorton, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that's why I asked the question. Right. I didn't assume the fact. I asked a question. So, yeah. my, my grandfather, uh, were he alive, he would box me in the ears for saying this, but his name was Gordon Elmer Singleton. And um, he went by GES. All his businesses, his monogram stuff was GES. He hated the name Elmer. Um, and I think it was because of Mel Blank that he hated the name Elmer. <laughs> Uh, other, I mean, it was a fine name until Elmer Blank made him a the the you know hat wearing protagonist of the Donald Duck versus and Daffy Duck, uh, Daffy Duck, uh, Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. That was right. Donald was different, um, but I think he grew to hate it because of that. That doesn't have anything to do with anything. I'm a little loopy, folks. Just letting you know, I'm I've been fighting a migraine today. I'm sort of hopped up on on medication at the moment. So if I'm more rambling than normal. Just get used to it. Oh, this will be fun. <laughs> uh, all right. I, I did want to start off by saying, um, I, I, I'm a, I want to ask, actually, if you have had the same experience. Is is Firefox really starting to suck for the two of you, or is it just me? I will have to say, no, it hasn't started to <laughs> <Okay>. suck. <laughs> it's, been, it's been inhaling uh, rather powerfully for quite some time now. It's it's weird because it, it does suck, and I don't like using it as my regular browser. Uh, but if you're a software developer, it's very valuable because it kind of, I guess it represents the lowest common denominator of suckage or yeah. something. So if you can get something to work on it, it pretty much works across the board. So I use it for testing, but that's about it. Which hurts my heart because I, I was a Phoenix beta user. You remember Phoenix back when you downloaded the zip file? Um, (laughs) and, and, and there was no install. You just ran it from your desktop or your C drive or whatever. Firefox has been my daily driver, um, since then, 
I mean, uh, long before it was called Firefox, I have every day on every machine I've ever owned, Firefox has been my primary browser. But uh, in the most recent update on my Linux desktop, not, not necessarily on my Windows devices, but on my Linux desktop, the most recent update um, comes up, every page comes up offline for about the first 10 minutes of a browsing session. No amount of refreshing, nothing will fix it. And then after about 10 minutes, it, it comes back and I can use it. So I have to start up my laptop, launch Firefox, open Chrome, do my browsing, and then later go back to Firefox and do what I want to do. It's the craziest thing. And I know it's a problem uh, with, you know, that was introduced in a recent update. But these are supposed to be the open source folks, right? Wouldn't they have tested their stuff with Linux? And, and I get it. Linux is, is an odd sort of thing. It could be any number of a thousand different things. But it just frustrates me. And like you said, Seth, it's, it's, the, it's sort of the final straw for me. They have, uh, they've really become the Internet Explorer of the Internet. And it's really frustrating to me. Well, you know, since Microsoft dropped Internet Explorer, someone had to rise to claim the title. So uh, shame it was Firefox. Firefox Edge. I predict it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that happens periodically. Somebody, you know, no matter how how no matter how advanced something gets, eventually somebody says, "This is old and crufty. We need to start over again." And then they spend six years getting back to where they were. Um, and th- that was the uh, the Netscape project, right? Remember, Netscape became um, uh, what what did become? It was the precursor. Mosaic. No, mosaic? there was mo- Mosaic yeah. became Netscape. Netscape became Oh, it was just the the from Netscape to Netscape four. I remember four was the the whole new. We just dumped all the code. It was no longer uh, mosaic based anymore. It was now uh, fully and, and it was that thing where it took them four years to get back to where they were, but all the code was clean and pretty. Um, and I think you know, and out of that, after, during that downtime, Firefox was born by the same company. I don't really understand how that works, but welcome to open source. When everybody gets to work on anything they want, you have a thousand different versions. I'm just a little bit worried that people think that web browsers are a quote platform. Like if you talk about if you talk to any new software developer, you know, the guy who just came out of CompSci at university and gets the job as the coder for company X or whatever, they often walk in thinking that programming is developing something on a browser, like right. something as a web. And it ain't. <laughs> I mean, there's computers with like CPUs and chips and memory and they do things and that's what you code and the browser sits on top of that. And what you, and it's everything you do in a browser, let's face it, it's a hack. JavaScript is a hack. And yet this is the thing for all the new kids. So I'm sorry, get off my lawn, I'm an old guy. But I don't, I don't get browsers as platforms to develop on. Hence... The reliance on Firefox versus Chrome versus IE and so on. I get that we users encounter this, but developers have gone gaga for browsers. Go figure. On an only loosely related note, the other day, uh, you know, now now Google has has um, consolidated the web essentially in that Chrome that Chrome now means web browser for most people. Even Windows users um, largely are using Chrome. Um, I, I'm not sure when it happened, but at some point there was a tipping point where Google now owns email. I mean, email means Gmail to everybody. You know, only the extreme Uber nerds or the extreme, you know, Apple files or, or whatever, the, the people on the fringes of whatever they are 
um, don't use Gmail. And so Gmail means internet. I mean, Gmail means email, and now Chrome means internet. Um, I'm a little concerned about that. I don't mean to be an alarmist, but uh, that worries me just a little bit. But Mark, you already sold your soul and higher brain functions to Google. I have. So that that should that should make you proud that you picked the right Kool-Aid to drink. So, you know, I think part of the downfall of like Firefox was when, and of course, Google never officially said it, but when they started tweaking their services to not work as good in other web browsers, you know, and there was, you know, they were all over the web and YouTube videos when people would put that Chrome user string in Firefox and they didn't change, they didn't add any plugins or anything. All of a sudden, their stuff started working again. And Google was like, no, we haven't changed anything. And, uh, you know, so Ooh, since Google like owns it. the web, they've poisoned Firefox. And Firefox is really the better browser. It's just, uh, here's my conspiracy theory first one <laughs> yeah. of the night. Since Google has owned the web, they are killing the one thing better than them. And then, so they have become Microsoft. You know, hey, look, our browser sucks compared to everybody else. Let's give it away for free and put them out of business. So, like I say, that's my first conspiracy theory of the night. Not a very good one, I know, but I'm just getting started. So. That's mm, very interesting. I run Chromium. I don't run Chrome. Uh, I run it on Linux. I don't know if that's any better. It's all WebKit based, right? Yeah. I, Chromium is just the development branch of Chrome. Uh, I run uh, Chromium on my on my uh, Linux laptop, and as far as I'm concerned, it's Chrome. I mean, there's just no difference, really. It's it's a little a little ahead in some areas and a little behind in some others, but basically, it's Chrome. Yeah, and I think we're all getting more and more reliant on Chrome apps as well that are doing more things that originally we would download a program and run, and now they're doing it within Chrome apps, which is a thing, I guess. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, I'm not going to say we couldn't do this show without Google, but we would have to do it in an entirely different way because everything, uh, all the core infrastructure of this show is Google. <laughs> yeah. We and sold also, our souls. <laughs> There was a time where everything was PC based. You know, it went from the mainframe to the PC and now it's migrated from the PC to the cloud. So all of these programs that we now run on web pages and web this, web that used to be programs you installed on your computer. You know, who right. wants to have an email client when you can just go to web and go to, you know, I don't want to have a client and I got to get the IMAP server and ports right. I'll just go to Gmail and check what's there. You know, I don't want to have a game I download on my desktop. I just want to go to the web and play some stupid games. You know, why have Microsoft Office when you can just use uh, Google Docs? So all of these things that used to be uh, person centric are now somebody else centric. And yeah, I, I recently had to install Microsoft Office on uh, the machines here at the house for my kids' school uh, as part of the, as is common across the U.S. now, as part of the school's uh, licenses, every student gets a license at home. So I can, I can install it on any number of PCs in my house uh, because I have three kids. I think I get five computers per kid, but with three kids in the same school district, I've got 15 computers I can run it on for free. Free to me. Somebody else is paying for it. But anyway, it was it was so frustrating to me to actually have to go run through an install process to download the thing, to install, to click next. And, and the whole time, uh, there were two sides of my brain uh, warring with each other. One was like, I can't believe I have to do this. And the other one was, how stupid you've gotten that you just expect all this stuff to work. 
Um, you know, and, and they do Office 365 uh, for lots of stuff, but this one particular project was too advanced to be done, Miles, using JavaScript, CSS, and HTML5, so I had to actually install a real program, and I was I was a whiny little baby about it. Why am I having to install this, <laughs> you know, nearly a gigabyte of, of storage space uh, taken up um, just for, for this one thing? Anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> My pain is, you know, excessive right now. I hear you. I hear you. I'm catching your migraine now, Mark. Sheesh. <laughs> the SOS SIG just died a little more, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was a group that I helped found back in Texas. Still going strong. The Strategic Open Source Special Interest Group. Um, and I have, I have abandoned them entirely i'm installing you know, microsoft pe- office people with lisps would never ever go to that group <laughs> <laughs> this is true oh that was funny um i, I this is completely unrelated but i want to i want to lead it into something that you're going to talk about miles um i've read a couple of articles articles this week not really any one that i could bring but it seems to be a big thing now that uh, the IRS, uh, American Internal Revenue Service, our uh, tax-collecting branch of the government, is, says they're going to come after Bitcoin. And, of course, of course, a lot of people are sort of panicking about that. Oh, my gosh, your money's going to be taxed. Um, me, I see that as one of the best things that could happen. That's the federal government uh, legitimizing this digital currency. I'm fine if they take my income tax. I mean, I, as an American citizen, I do believe I pay too much income tax in general, but I'm fine with them taxing all my income in the same manner, whether it be digital or, or real. So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, they, they are, and they've been they put that law in years ago that Bitcoin was going to be considered a, an asset for tax purposes. So, if it goes up in value and you transact on it, you you know you sell it or you exchange it for something, you create a taxable event and. I don't understand why people don't understand how simple that is. It's like if you buy a house and you bought it for 100000 and you live in it for 10 years and you sell it for 300000 uh, you've got to pay tax on the gain, right? Like you made 200000 you get taxed at whatever the capital gains rate is applicable to you and you pay the tax and you report it. Bitcoin's the same. And, and I think what's happening is that it's people don't understand that it's not a bunch of computer code. It's actually a capital asset. So when you buy it for $1,000 and it goes up to $4,000, you realize to gain, but only when you transact it. So if you just sit on your Bitcoin, you do nothing, you're not creating a taxable event. You're fine. If you do something with the Bitcoin, then you've got to work out what the gain really was. And that's where the problem is. That's where things fall down because the IRS have not issued anything more than a one and a half page FAQ on how to identify what the gain is on Bitcoin. And they don't understand the concept of public private keys. They don't understand or, you know, the blockchain, all that sort of thing. And they leave all of us with big question marks over our heads, particularly our accountants who are doing your tax returns. And consequently, people go, it's too hard. I won't report anything. And that's just worse for everybody else. Up until now, it's been largely ignored by the IRS. Yes, they had a position paper on it, but that's about as far as it went. But now they're actually, when it briefly uh, was over $5,000 earlier in the week, uh, they, they sort of say, oh, wait a minute, I need to pay attention to this. And I think that's what's freaking people out. Not that there's anything new about it, but now that they're actually paying attention. 
Yeah, uh, you know, and it's okay. I mean, I want people to make money with Bitcoin, but I want people to pay their fair share of tax so that we're all, it's it, it's fair, right? I mean, if you get money for nothing because you got your Bitcoin way back when, that's awesome, great news. Now pay your tax when you sell it or don't sell it, let it ride and don't pay tax. And, and you know, it's fine, but don't not, don't pretend it didn't happen and stick your fingers in your ears and go, na, 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 to Bitcoin. It doesn't work like that. You've got to pay your tax. Yeah, I mean, in the same way, if I were strolling along the beach with my metal detector and pulled up a, you know, a, a crate full of Spanish doubloons, I'd have to pay taxes on that. You know, whatever you way to look at it, if you gain something, that's an income. The mm-hmm. U.S. is an income entity, uh, income tax entity. You had income, you have to be taxed. Anyway, well, I look so at it as a good thing. It is a good part thing, of it, though, is stupid ahead, because according to my understanding of current IRS regulations, if I find a Spanish doubloon and let's say it's worth 100000 but I sell it for 70000 I have I have a $100,000 gain that I have to report. And then I can take the $30,000 loss because I sold it for a loss, maybe, but they kind of try to do away with that. And so... Part of it is, you know, like the way, and you know, who knows, IRS, you know, I know the IRS listens to our podcast because we're super (laughs) awesome. Um, You know, I consider my Bitcoin asset, I consider the cash value when I pull it out, even though technically I earn a little bit every couple of days, I think I get paid now um, uh, through my mining rig. So, you know, when I pull it out, that's when it's income to me. And it, it's not income when I get it because that's not it's not money. Um, so anyway, we'll see if I ever get audited. I've got my little kilometer running, so I know how much my electric costs are. Well, that's and, uh, uh, that depends on how they do it. Like uh, for for example, in a stock environment, and I, I'm sorry, we're going down a rabbit hole here. Uh, <laughs> in a stock environment, you can only be taxed at the capital gain rate if it's a low turnover fund. If it's a high turnover fund, you're taxed at a different rate. So would they count your bitcom? regular income as high turnover i don't know uh, i would say since you're you're gathering and and storing it would still be considered low turnover uh, low turnover and therefore capital gains i put it all under my schedule c for my computer stuff you know all money i make through my computer stuff i have a you know schedule c that i fill out and it's just one of my income sources on that that's how i that's how i chart it like I say, well, you know, they'll probably serve me with a letter or something, be waiting on me when I get home because that's how fast they act. Um, just that's a, just the way I do it. Just a quick <laughs> aside here. When I did my taxes this last time around, I put in all my income from Patreon and from Amazon, and my accountant said that's not enough to even tax. So pay me, people. All right. Now, Miles, <laughs> you were going to say? I was just going to add to the Bitcoin discussion about a different angle on it, but it is related because just as the IRS are treating Bitcoin kind of like a prehistoric dinosaur that they think still lives and breathes on, you know, out of Mongolia somewhere, um, banks appear to be doing the same thing. I'll tell you an interesting little story this week. I um, decided to buy some more Bitcoin on Coinbase and just before I did the transaction, I also happened to be surfing YouTube and I, I'm, I like the whole concept of frequent flyer miles. I travel a lot and I try to do it without having to pay anything for it. So I have a bunch of credit cards that I use for doing this and I was going to choose which credit card to use to buy some Bitcoin on Coinbase because I can get it instantly that way and maybe generate a few frequent flyer miles and then pay the card off immediately and everyone wins, right? 
So I uh, watching this YouTube video and this guy is talking about uh, now, if you're in the US, this will make sense. Um, he was talking about JP Morgan Chase or Chase Bank and Chase's credit cards and the fact that this guy had his credit cards all shut down. In fact, not just his credit cards, but all of his bank account, everything he had to do had a relationship with Chase Bank shut down on him. And the reason is that he was using Chase uh, credit cards to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase. And I'm listening to this going, well, I do that too. What's, uh, what's going on here? And apparently he researched it. And the reason is that the banks consider any purchase of Bitcoin like you're running a drug ring mm. or a porno farm or something. And at the end of the day, they basically don't want to do business with you if you're buying Bitcoin. So I thought, you know what? Um, I don't want to risk it. So I'll go into my Coinbase account and I'll cancel my Chase card and I'll put a non-Chase card in there. So I picked a card from Barclays Bank, which uh, is a British bank, but they do business here in the States. And uh, I logged it in and they send you a couple of little, you know, a couple of cent transactions or whatever. You tell them what it is to verify it's a valid card and everything. Did all of that. Next thing you know, I mean, literally within 10 seconds, my phone rings. I pick up the phone. It's this automated fraud protection message from Barclays Bank saying that if you do business with Coinbase with the Barclays card, they shut your card down. And they did. Wow. So I'm like, seriously? So anyway, I call them back and I call the fraud protection. I'm like, what's this all about? And they're like, oh, well, we consider those transactions to be highly suspicious. And therefore, we immediately, uh, you know, deny the transaction. But since you called us and told us about it, we'll put everything back online again and you can do it. This is this is the thing. It seems like the credit cards and the banks are hating on the Bitcoin and they're hating on the Coinbase. And now you've got to jump through hoops to be able to get them to be able to be using as an on-ramp. So just be warned, if you've got a Coinbase account, just be careful if you're using credit cards. You know, I don't necessarily know that that's specific to Bitcoin. Um, when I drove up, when I drove over to um, Marks on my way up to Pennsylvania, um, not on my first stop, weird enough, but the second time I stopped, I was out of state to get gas. My card didn't work, and so you know, luckily I had my cell phone. I was like, um, "Why is my card declined?" Uh, and they say fraud prevention because it's. In, I was like, "That's me. I'm driving. Please turn it back on." <laughs> but so I think it's just. You know, anything unusual. Yeah, I think what it is is, you know, they don't tell people about fraud and about how insecure the internal bank uh, networks that they use to transfer funds among each other are, how insecure they are. I think they've got pwned recently for a lot of money and they're just they're they're hiding it and then they're they're clamping down on everything to make it look like they know what's going on when they really don't. That's my second conspiracy theory of the week. Hopefully that one's a little better. <laughs> well, my last trip to Texas, I uh, I bought a tank of gas in Georgia, a tank of gas in Louisiana, and a battery because it I oddly picked that time to die on me in Texas all within 12 hours and all in the same credit card. And they said, no. And and so they I was, you know, I try, I, I pulled into this place to uh, where there happened to be a Walmart nearby. Um 
to fill up uh, my tank. And when I started the car, nothing. Uh, the battery just picked that moment to die. Um, so I was able to uh, get it over to the, the Walmart because uh, it was nearby and they have an auto center. So I bought the battery. They were uh, getting ready to install it and they, they uh, tried to charge the card and it was rejected. And so then they put me on the phone with the person and I said, yeah, I'm traveling. I, I live in Atlanta. I'm traveling to Dallas. My, my car battery died. And they made me answer you know, several relatively uh, personal questions uh, to secure, to prove that it was really me. So, and that was like, you know, same, same thing you were running into Seth. It's, it's commodities uh, purchases that are unusual, right? And so maybe miles, that's all it was for you. You were purchasing a commodity. Maybe if it had been a, a $50 transaction instead of a two cent transaction, they would have considered it less suspicious. I don't know. Yeah, they, they denied everyone. They denied the, uh, the, you know, the little penny transactions were, they flagged those. And then immediately I, after, before I realized it had been flagged, I did a $400 Bitcoin purchase and they denied that. So it didn't seem to be anything to do with the amount. It was more to do with who the vendor was. Yeah, could be. I'm trying mm. to give them credit. I really am. Uh, this, yeah. this money stuff is hard. It really is. It is. It is. Shouldn't be. And in fact, Bitcoin is supposed to solve that problem. It's supposed to to be yeah. automatically verifiable, a hundred percent traceable, uh, and yet anonymous, which is you know a, a weird balance to 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 walk, and you know globally, um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Homogenous across wherever mm-hmm. you are, and uh, you know it's supposed to be solving that, and maybe that's why banks are antithetical to it, is because it actually does make them fairly irrelevant. Well, they, they still control the on-ramp to the Bitcoin freeway, so once we're on the freeway, we're all good. We just got to right. get on the freeway. Yeah, and you know, banks could have been out in front adopting uh, Bitcoin and looking for ways to be Bitcoin houses. You know, instead of being Coinbase to hold your Bitcoin, you could hold your Bitcoin at Chase or whatever. And instead, because the upper level executives who have been there, you know, we didn't know that they've had cloning and these are the same people from the 1870s that are still there. Uh, You know, they have no idea what it is. They just see it as a threat to their bottom line and not so much their bottom line, but a threat to their stock buyback program. So that way they get their maximum bonuses every year. Um, you you hit that the bonuses in the executive washrooms. At least we can count on it's like a drinking game. Every every week we can count on Seth to mention those. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm trying. You know, we're geek rant and not geek nice social talk. Uh, well, I want to hear your thoughts on uh, Amazon's third incarnation of the tick. My personal favorite was the 1990s cartoon. Actually, it's the fourth incarnation if you count the comic books. Uh, the third in- incarnation in video. Um, uh, the uh, 2000s uh, version with Patrick Warburton was woefully disappointing. Uh, I watched the the pilot of this one and left me going, I don't really know if I like this or not. Uh, the, the Tick is played by a guy whose name just flew out of my head. He was Stanley with a C, if you like to watch the movie uh, The Couple's Retreat. Um, and so, Seth, you have watched at least some of it. Tell us about it. How bad, how bad is it? Okay, well, I watched all six episodes, and my biggest complaint is their whole season is six what would be 30-minute episodes. They're 20-something. And so, you know, the the first one is kind of an origin, and it, I don't know. It's 
the, you know, of course, it's not like set in what you would consider the Tick universe. I'm not nearly the Tick aficionado you were, so my standards for it are a lot lower. They tried to be in a gritty, real-world thing, but maintain some of the Tick's, um, you know, weirdness and his um, innocence. And so, I was. it was just to my thing starting to get good. Um whenever it was over. So if you look at season one has a two hour origin movie that will then set the rest of the tick universe, I think it could be really good. So hopefully there will be a second season. Um, I don't, I mean, you know, I talked recently or several months ago now about Goliath, which was an Amazon web series. And I thought it was pretty good because it told a complete story um, in its, I think it was eight hour, hour and something episodes. Um, this is six 30 minute episodes. You can't tell a complete story in that. And so they really didn't even try. Um, but they were just kind of setting everything up to get to where, like in the comics or in the, the live action one, to get to the place to where they started. You're almost up to that at the end of the series. So I was kind of disappointed in that. I just, I hate the short, you know, six, eight, 10 episode arcs and calling them seasons. Right. You know, I mean, well, it, it, if, if you're going to do a show and it's only going to be, you know, I hate it when they try to keep shows going forever and ever until the cow has not only been dead, but resurrected has a horse and killed for glue, you know, that's bad, but just, Tell us, you know, make the season long enough to do something. And well, it wasn't the, long enough to do anything. In the old days of, of a television that came to you from through the air or through with an antenna, they would have referred to that as a global miniseries event instead of uh, a season. Um, it's just the same thing with different terminology. I, I felt the same way. I I am one episode from the end of uh, Defenders. I've watched seven episodes. There's an eighth. Uh, I don't know what happens, but I know I'm going to be disappointed because they cannot tie up enough storylines in one episode to make me satisfied. So that I can't, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, whatever it is, I'm going to leave that eighth episode disappointed because they didn't leave themselves enough runway to land the plane. Yeah, but a global miniseries event would tell a story. You know, uh, North and South, book one or book two told complete story the winds of war an awesome miniseries epic told a complete story the tick is like the first half of the origin issue and i'm just like ah you know finish it uh so hopefully there will be a season two and it will come out before august the 25th of 2018 i think it's about uh of uh, mitigating your risk is what it is it's uh you know we we these episodes are cheaply made uh in television terms they're probably still spending a million dollars or more an episode but they're cheaply made uh there's only a a, you know six or eight of them so we spent call it 10 million dollars uh in tv terms that's that's a cheap low risk entry and then if and then if we if it takes off we'll do more yeah now as far as the production like to me, it was, you know, like, of course, there's not a lot of effects, but it, it, it wasn't like 
you know, cheap people. It wasn't like me and my niece using a camcorder that you could hit pause on. You know, it was like the ticks costume looked cool. The superheroes and supervillains costumes looked well done. And, you know, maintaining the um, the other world, you know, the comic book-esque, you know, not gritty like the Marvel Daredevil costume. But it was well done from that standpoint. So it, it was, it was good. The, to me, the production value was good. Uh, there wasn't enough of a show for me to tell you if it was good or not, but I, I would watch it. Um, it kind of makes me want to go back and watch the, uh, live action in the cartoon again, just to refresh myself on tick lore. <laughs> Ticks have lore. Yeah. Whoa. Who knew? <laughs> Um, but I will say so far, my favorite scene out of defenders and no spoilers here is J- Luke cage, Jessica Jones and daredevil riding the subway. Cause that was the only way they could get where they wanted to go. That was funny. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's all I'll tell you. Um, you've also seen the Hitman's bodyguard. I've seen advertisements. I don't know anything about it. Okay, it it's Ryan Reynolds. He's the bodyguard, and Samuel L. Jackson is the hitman. Okay, that's so, all I needed to know. It, yeah, it's a buddy comedy. I mean, you know how many characters has Ryan Reynolds played? Um, two, and one of them was the Deadpool. He wasn't allowed to say anything. So all the rest have been just Ryan Reynolds. Uh, and then you know Samuel L. Jackson is you you know I mean he was he was playing a bodyguard who wasn't named Samuel L. Jackson but acted just like him. So it was. <laughs> it was a lot like 48 hours, almost a remake of 48 hours. Whenever they first met each other, I was like, it was, it was actually a pretty decent fight scene um, in the, you know, cause you know, they had guns and, and I was like, wow, that's actually pretty good. And so the, the fights in it, the physical fights were actually, I mean, you know, I thought they were pretty good. Of course, you know, there's lots of blood in it, but it's integral to the story. It's not like 300 blood splatter in the theater. Um, very integral to the story. A um, little too much cussing for my taste, but it really didn't detract from the story. I just like, you know, okay, yeah, you know, I think there's a contract. They have to use the F-bomb a hundred times. And uh, so overall, it was, I mean, I can't think of a single reason to see it in IMAX or 3D, but I enjoyed my theater experience with it. All right. Yeah, it's getting so that uh, more and more things, I saw something pop up on the Roku just yesterday. It was something, uh, it was a Tom Cruise movie. I can't remember what it's called, but it was like, uh, watch it now before it comes to theaters on September 29th. Um, and I thought that is the smartest thing in the world. A, it creates buzz for your movie, but B, it acknowledges the fact that the at-home viewing experience now is good enough. In the same way that MP3s aren't as good as CDs, it's good enough, and it's been good enough for so long that 90-plus percent of the world doesn't listen to CDs ever. And uh, you know, um, and the home th- theater experience with your 45-inch TV uh, and your, your comfy sofa is good enough for so many people that people aren't going to the theaters. They're just waiting for it to, to come to Google Play or come to Amazon or come to iTunes or whatever. And so I really think it's great that, that uh, you know, uh, Tom Cruise has sort of been uh, producing his own stuff for a while now. He has label backing, but he's not uh, necessarily, um, you know, MCA Universal or something like that. Uh, it's, it's good to see somebody testing the waters 
with this pre-release stuff i would i would love to see more people doing that and then seth like you said there's there's times when it's worthwhile to go to the theater there's times when it's not um and then the theaters are really trying to make that experience a premium experience getting back to what movie theaters used to be uh back in the early days so i'm excited about the the trend in that uh but it's also nice to hear a recommendation that says this one's worth seeing on the big screen have you guys yeah, been to you guys been to the alamo draft house in texas i never went there no oh no, man it. It, it, it is exactly what you're talking about where they make the movie going experience a real experience because this place is like if you're an art artisan movie lover like you love 1950s b-grade weird movies or you know gidget movies or even modern day stuff but really um kind of nerdy geeky and and weird movies but really entertaining They've made these theatres an experience to go for. I mean, the meals are fantastic. The seats are super comfortable. And you get to see movies that you would probably watch if you had a lot of time on your hands and you were surfing Netflix looking at old weird movies. But these guys just dish it out on a platter to you. It's beautiful. Yeah, And I think that's the future of movies. I don't think we're going to continue to have the blockbusters. You know, I talked about, I think last week when I went into the whole explore exploit thing, uh, the way movies are being made right now can't continue. It just, it, 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 there is a definite end to that arc. Um, and something has to change. You either go back to making, um, small movies or you make the experience such that you, you go for the experience regardless of what's on the screen. Well, you know, used to every movie didn't have to be a blockbuster. There was like the summer blockbuster is Jaws. And now it's the Friday, you know, August the 3rd blockbuster is, you know, <laughs> right. Guardians of the Galaxy 17. And Saturday, August the 5th blockbuster is, you know, Justice League geriatrics or something like that. Everything's got to be over the top, gargantuan, huge. It's going to be huge. Uh, and there can't. <laughs> Sorry, I just I'm bad at impressions, but uh, in my mind that was President Trump. For everybody else who was like, "What did he just do there?" Um, but you know, so just make a movie, and if it doesn't make, you know, it doesn't have to make a billion dollars. Although a ticket price is, it only takes about fifteen or twenty people to reach that price now. So, but you know, it's okay if it's not the number one movie, uh, you know, in the land. It's okay. Doesn't mean it's a bad movie. I bought and rewatched uh, Wonder Woman uh, this weekend. Uh, still stands up as the best DC movie yet, which doesn't say much. But it's a good movie. It's a solid movie. Um, obvious plot holes. I talked about them previously. Um, on the small screen, you know, in my home, uh, my basement media center is a, a hundred inch screen, so it's still kind of big ish screen. It's but it's not IMAX. There, the visuals um, really took me out of it a lot more. Um, you know the when you have a CGI Wonder Woman spinning around beating up CGI Germans um, on the big screen, when you have to physically move your eyes to follow the action, it's you you're more willing to let it get away with stuff. But on the small screen where you can see every detail at a glance, um, it didn't hold up as well. And there were several moments when I was watching, I was like, oh, that looked really bad. I didn't remember seeing that in the theater. Um, and I think maybe that's why people want you to go to the theater because it is a different type of experience. You know, I was watching, um, I'm watching Enterprise. I'm realizing there's a lot of the episodes I missed, but um, my Roku is streaming it HD from Amazon, 
And there's so many of the effects that, and of course, you know, it came out, what, 15 years ago now? So before, yeah, long before HD. Yeah, before, you know, you had 80 inch TVs in the bathroom. So there's so many of the shots that were meant to be seen in a distance where it's cheap computer animation and you're like, Oh, that's bad. And like <laughs> the the first time where there's the, you know, spoiler alerts, there's aliens in Enterprise. Um, these aliens board the spaceship and they're just they're they're bad. It's bad um CGI. And it was just like, you know, this series, you know, some of the visuals hold up nice, but for the most part, it doesn't hold up to HD viewing. You've got to like really suspend disbelief, you know, maybe pull out your old CRT TV and, and hook it up and watch it that way. But it just, it doesn't survive HD. Um, but it's an underappreciated series, I think. Yeah, if you watch old sporting events uh, on a modern television, it looks like Tech Mobile. Because, um, you know, if you're watching like the first uh, 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 Super Bowl, for example, that uh, was shot expected to be seen on a 10 inch screen 10 feet away um and so the close-ups were super close-ups uh but most everything else was pretty far away and it looks so terrible and and uh i watch stuff like that sometimes you know you, you're flipping through and it's on aspn I, I just point out and say kids this was what i thought was good when i was growing up <laughs> pay attention learn from your elders people um <laughs> All right, well, that's that's a whole lot of us blathering. Uh, I want to get into uh, our one little bit of listener feedback um, where uh, Batman, our old friend Batman, chimes in once again to tell me that I am doing his job and I should stop it. Yes, Mark. This is Batman calling about your rant the other day against the open source commenter. I just wanted to make sure you realized that if your point was to say that the listener was wrong because he was hiding behind a false sense of security, then you're right. But if you'll go back and reread what he said, you put words into his mouth. He did not say that open source makes him perfectly safe. You then took the argument to the extreme and said that because he cannot build the silicone himself, solder the parts himself, program everything himself, that he cannot be completely sure that it is safe. Therefore, he has to have trusted many people along the way. Therefore, his argument was invalid. Obviously, in this case, you are wrong. He didn't say open source makes him perfectly safe. He said it allowed in uncheckable binary blob that that would reduce security. That was a very valid point. And I believe it was ingenuous of you to put him down so forcefully the way you did. That's Batman's job to put people down forcefully. It's important for us to have open source, even if you don't agree with the philosophy behind it, even if you don't think that it is valid because it is idealistic, it is important that we have people working to push that direction. You said that we must trust someone, therefore you dismissed his argument out of hand. But shouldn't we be pushing for systems, computer systems, hardware, software, everything, where we are 
more able to verify its security as opposed to giving in and trusting more and more. Rather than drinking the Google Kool-Aid, we should be pushing against that wherever we can so that we do maintain options. We do maintain the possibility that we can keep things more secure than they would otherwise be. You're correct, it is not a perfect world. And you're correct that some of the open-source zealots do see unicorns and rainbows. But there does not mean that we should not be pushing that direction. Thanks for your time, Mark. Bye. Your host, the Sultan of the Soapbox, has been called on the carpet for the use of reductio ad absurdum, the um, uh, argumentative technique of reducing your opponent's argument to its extreme and then mocking the result. Um, I do not believe I did that, but I can see why you might think that he did. I chose to respond not to the words on the page, but to what I believed were the intent behind the words. I, I attacked the argument rather than the spe- specifics. Uh, for that, I will say, um, bad host, no cookie. Uh, but, uh, you know, good point. We do need open source zealots. I've said that before. Um, in uh, Alongside all of my mocking of Richard Stallman, I've also said we need him. Um, and so I appreciate those canaries in the coal mine. Uh, but I don't think I misrepresented his arguments exactly in the same way you did. But having said that, I'll leave the beating people down to Batman. Batman illustrates an interesting point, though. And maybe I didn't, until I heard his take on it, I didn't completely understand maybe what the the previous uh, caller, uh, uh, person who wrote in the uh, response, had mentioned. But there is some there. I'm gonna at the risk of having Batman attack me in my house, which I don't want. So please, Batman, forgive me for what I'm about to say. But I'm sorry, I don't agree with the whole. It's okay if we make some effort towards open source, because when it comes to security and uh, intrusion protection or exploitation of proprietary blob that entered your operating system or whatever, you've got to be 100% right in order to be secure. If you're 99% right, that don't cut it because all a bad guy needs is one little place to come in and break all the integrity of everything around them and then all of your efforts towards open source and, and you know security and all that are wasted. One, one fail equals everything wasted. So unless you're 100% free and open source and 100% guarantee everything is pure, it's not pure at all. And uh, to use a very bad analogy, it's the turd in the punch bowl problem. Yeah. You can't just dip on the other side of the punch bowl. It doesn't work. Right. Uh, but in, And that was my point. Uh, I think Batman is saying that uh, we can strive for perfect software, even though we can't necessarily have perfect hardware. Um, and I c- kind of said it in what you said, it's either perfection or nothing. Uh, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, for sure. Yeah, but, you know, for right now, we would all agree we have neither perfect hardware nor perfect software. So, you know, if we could just get one of them, we could then work on the other. But, um, you know, so but since that's not going to happen, all we can do is just, you know, try to mitigate the damages as much as we can, which is unfortunately the sad state of current affairs. Yeah. 
But it keeps Batman in, in business. Absolutely. <laughs> Attacking cyber terrorists near you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, I did a little detective work of my own. I, I know who Batman is, um, and uh, I hope you're feeling better, Batman. <laughs> I'll just leave that there. Um, I, I did. There was one other thing. I think I may have mentioned it on this show. I know I did on the Android App Addicts podcast that I also host over on Podnuts, P-O-D-N-U-T-Z. If you're, if you're looking for other stuff out there, they make some pretty good stuff. I'm even on some of it. Um, that my Android Wear watch had gone down the road of major suckage, um, and I complained loudly uh, that you know my batteries, which had been going you know, 12, uh, 20 plus hours, was now getting me six to eight hours. And if I wanted to get through you know, even a 12 hour work day, I'd have to charge it in the middle. Um, uh, I don't know what the problem was, but I know in the same day I got uh, an update to the Android Wear app on my phone, uh, the Android, uh, the Google Play app on my watch, and the Watchmaker app that does the watch face. Those all three came in on the same day, and my battery's fine. So the ecosystem fixed it, maybe, or maybe it was all coincidental, but it's all fine now. That's the important thing. It is, unless there was a turd in the punch bowl. <laughs> and so sticking into the wearables uh, thing, the Sailfish OS, the spiritual successor to Seth's uh, uh, beloved Mego, uh, may be moving to a watch near you. Yes, yeah, so the first ever commercial Asteroid OS smartwatch, dubbed Connect Watch, was revealed yesterday and went on sale today, September the 2nd, in Europe. It has a Wi-Fi only model and then a 3G model. The cool thing about this, it is actually a smart watch and not a semi-dumb watch like most of these things today. It does not require or need a smartphone. And if you get the 3G model, it can perform calls as well. So it's designed to be a really, you know, this is this is the first attempt, I guess, at a true Dick Tracy watch that doesn't need your phone to uh, or a computer nearby to make it function. So Asteroid OS is kind of, um, you know, hollow selfish for wearables. And I have no idea if it will turn out to be a thing or if this is a flash in the pan. But, you know, just in case you didn't think there was enough um, choice in the wearables market and, you know, you refuse Apple um, and you think the Android stuff is poo-poo. Well, you know, there is a third option. Um you know, and of course, this will only survive until Windows dominates. Ha ha! The smartphone market or the smartwatch market, right after they fix their smartphone. So you got years of uh, life ahead of you, Asteroid OS. I, I read a, uh, an article uh, just this week about Google uh, telling Android Wear developers step away from the phone people uh the android wear 2.0 app which has been out almost a year i think it was it's been i think it's been within calendar year 2017 but just barely it was it was early in the year doesn't need a phone for many many functions but the ecosystem of apps still require the phone and google has kind of been uh, uh making noise saying come on guys step up and make full-fledged apps that can only uh that can do everything you need just on the watch and uh, maybe that's coming. That's some pressure. Uh, some coming as a result of some pressure from Asteroid OS. 
Mm. I think it would be cool. You know, it's like when when the quote unquote smartphone first came out, it was only a semi smartphone and Android actually broke the dependence on a computer before the um, before Apple did, you know, and, you know, my premise was a device that you have to manage from another device is not a smart device. So it's semi smart. So, um, you know, of course, Apple heard my complaint. This is how much pull I have, people. And then it was like their next version after I started saying that you didn't have to do, you know, tether it to a phone or whatever for updates. So I've got the pull. I've complained enough. They listen and they make changes. So if you if you have ways you want Apple to go, let me know and I'll tell them I like it. And then it'll never happen. So um, but anyway, so yes, it, it appears to be an actual smartwatch and not just a semi-smartwatch. So, you know, Dick Tracy, here we come. I don't know that anybody actually wants that Dick Tracy watch. Um, I, 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 th- I think wearables will actually, the smartwatch, I'm not going to say wearables. Wearables are the future. Um, but I think the smartwatch as it is today will die before it actually makes a, uh, somebody makes the Dick Tracy watch. I'm just so. wait, I'm just waiting to be standing in standing in line somewhere and somebody's watch rings and they answer it and talk into their watch. I mean, you think it's available, it should work like that and then these things are supposed to work, but you just look like such an idiot doing that. I mean, it's just not very socially culturally no. decent, is I it? Sp- I speak to my watch on a regular basis. Uh the, my particular model doesn't have a speaker i can't have a phone conversation there are watches that that do but i does i routinely (laughs) uh text uh, do voice replies to texts uh from my watch a text will come in i i I get a a vibration on my watch i'll watch it I'll, i'll see it if it's uh you know under 300 characters or whatever can fit on the screen i can read it at a glance if not i have to scroll up i can re- tap the reply button i can speak out my reply that's a regular part of my everyday activities uh but then again i i spend my day surrounded by nerds so they don't really think twice about that sort of thing okay here is how wearables can truly dominate so you have your smart watch you have your bluetooth headset you know whatever your you know neon jacket advertising on the back so you can charge money to whatever and they can have a space on your back for ads and what happens is you have something about the size of a smartphone today that is nothing but a battery that fits in the pouch in either the pants or the shirt that charges all of your wearable stuff and then so you know you can either swap them out and it could also be a phone for extra apps or storage but you know because you're i think to me that gets you your wearable stuff and you don't have to then worry about how big of a battery can you get you know you just you know you pull into mcdonald's and you charge your coat instead of you know your phone uh, (laughs) while you're eating and that way you have your, your smart jacket your smart pants your smart underwear remember the poop app we revealed low those many years ago when we were still um everyday linux smart underwear could be a thing you know you have your smart socks to tell you if um you know what level of dr shoals you need or whatever and all of that is being powered by this battery that is roughly the size of today's cell phone i think i think that's how the wearable market can win solar powered baseball caps that's where it's at there you go. Because, yeah. I mean, you you think about it. Think about how small the processor 
is becoming and how much power, you know, go back to 20 years ago and look at the mighty 486 and what it could do. And now, you know, my Fitbit can run, can compute circles around that. So. All right. So here's my, here's my future theory. Uh, why Tricity, Chi charging is already a thing. Um, there are, um, uh, systems now that can chi charge up to about 30 meters, uh, 30 feet away, not 30 meters away. Um, that technology is going to improve, uh, within my children's lifetime, not mine, uh, but within my children's lifetime, there will be a move to make, um, uh, wireless transmitting power devices as commonplace as street lamps, possibly using the street lamp inter- infrastructure. So everybody will have ubiquitous access to uh, electricity using radio waves um, just as a part of public infrastructure. That's the way I think it's going to happen. It is. Uh, in Tokyo, they've been doing this. Um, Hitachi, I believe, got a contract with a certain... Now, I think, you know, the, it was a Tokyo equivalent of like our 7-Elevens, uh, you know, the corner store with the often the gas pump and the parking lot out the front that you can go and get your uh, beef jerky out or whatever. Well, they did this thing, I guess it was a pilot, but they did this thing where underneath the uh, the asphalt where people would, would park their cars, they put charging facilities for electric cars. So you just literally drove in, parked and went to the store and while you were parked, your car was charging. And this was uh, implemented in Tokyo a couple of years ago. I don't know what the end result of it was, whether they decided to go ahead or they found that it caused cancer or something. I don't know. But I think this is really actively happening. Hmm. Yeah, that or we'll be beaming energy from space. Uh, I mean, the, the, the problem is the transmission, not the availability of it. Solar, pel- solar panels in space uh, would be hundreds of times more efficient or more effective, not really more efficient in space because they don't have the atmosphere to deal with. And if we could figure out some way to beam that, you know, uh, Nikola Tesla theoretically knew how to do it back in the thirties. We just got to figure out how he did it. Um, And, and once we get energy from space problems, all these energy problems go away. We've, we've talked about this many times before. Once we have a clean, infinite or functionally infinite renewable source of energy, so many problems can be solved. There, there's technology we, we know how to do. We just don't have the energy to do it right now. Huh. But I'm going to jump into the uh, the actual topic of the show. We'll come back and look at some news later. I just wanted to do that one because it, it fit nicely into what we were discussing. Um, this, the title of the show, Announce of Prevention, uh, this is Strategic September or Septemberic Strategy or something. September Strategy. Something like that. Ooh, um, like that. And so we're going to talk about various uh, uh, strategies this this uh, month. Um, backup, storage, uh, work-life balance, just strategies to make you a better geek. Um, and it, in the events of uh, Hurricane Harvey, we haven't talked about this at all because it was sort of just going down last week when we were on the show, and we haven't talked about it yet. If you don't know, um, an area twice the size of Delaware – um, is underwater in South Texas. Uh, and unprecedented, it, in the time that we've been keeping records, there's never been a flood this big uh, anywhere in, in the world, assuming you're not counting NOAA. Um, so it just it just hasn't happened. Um, uh, people who live in Houston, people who live on the coast, uh, they expect a certain amount of, you know, 
uh, over X years, you can expect why uh, hurricane events, why wind events, why flooding events. You know, uh, Hurricane Katrina was a Category uh, 5 hurricane that uh, slammed into uh, an air, a city that was underwater already, and that was bad. Um, this was a Category 4, but it brought a storm surge with it that has literally been unseen before. The damage, uh, it covers a wider area and is more severe than what Katrina did. Um and so that got us to thinking, you know, we were already thinking in terms of, of strategies uh, for a better life anyway. Naturally, we talked about it a little while back when Seth sort of went surprisingly MIA. Uh, how, you know, how do you survive an emergency? Um, what about these things that are um, inevitable, but you don't know when they're going to happen, right? So at some point in time, every part of the globe is going to have some sort of natural disaster, an, hurricane, uh, 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 an earthquake, a hurricane, a flood. Uh, there's no place you can go where there's not something. Um, there's a sandstorm. There's a tornado. There's locusts. <laughs> there's no place in the world that is safe for humanity, um, which is says something anyway. We're all going to die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that, that uh, you've probably seen uh, floating around the Internet was this dude who built uh, a dam around his house using technology called Aquadam. Uh, this is not new technology. It's been used for a while. It's uh, basically big rubber, uh, big rubber tubes that you fill with water. The weight of that water um, serves as a dam against the water that comes in. They're, they're used in construction projects. They've been around for a while. This dude spent about eight grand uh, buying and, in, uh, uh, and shipping and installing a dam around his house and uh, in in uh, preparation for hurricane harvey he was laughed at but now he stands alone in a, a almost literal sea of water around him his house is untouched because of this so this was an ounce of prevention uh, some might say uh, significantly more than an ounce and that he spent a grand on it but he saved way more than eight thousand dollars his house his deductible was probably fifty thousand for his home right so uh assuming insurance covered everything he saved money but he also saved all of his stuff that would have gotten lost so one of the things i want to talk about is your stuff we often talk about the digital um backing up your data that sort of thing but what do you do with your stuff that that you want to keep um and you know i don't recommend everybody going out and buying an aqua dam um but if you live in in a flood prone area, eight grand seems like a pretty wise choice to me. Honestly, yeah. um, might be a good if idea. If I were to do the Aquadam people, I would refund his money and just use him as advertisement. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, they're getting yeah. they're getting contracts now. Uh, the city of Beaumont has bought their product to uh, help them, you know, clear out the area to, to repair the roads. Uh, the uh, Aquadam uh, spokesperson. Uh, said we've been extremely busy we've been working around the clock we just finished protecting a nursing home in abbeville um that's pretty amazing um and they like i said they've been around for a while uh they may be the big winner if you could call a winner uh out of uh, such a catastrophic catastrophic event um but short of going and putting several thousand gallons of of water in a big rubber tube around your house what can you do to protect your stuff um, and I just want to open it up for that. And, and so let's define stuff, right? Uh, what are the, some things that if you lose, you can't replace? So water comes into your home. It only takes about four inches of water to ruin all the drywall in your home. So, you know, a, a relatively minor flood that can happen from a pipe breaking. It doesn't have to be a category four hurricane. 
um, can cause tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage to your home. But your stuff is probably not going to be hurt. Um, you know, your, your PC might, uh, if it's in a case uh, under a desk, might be damaged. But your your photo albums, uh, your you know your marriage license, your 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 deeds, your will, those things are probably going to be safe because most of the time they're you know at eighteen inches or so height. But let's talk about if you're going to have you know a serious event like that. How do you protect your stuff? And one my one thought, and I I've told myself for over a decade now since uh, digital cameras became uh, inexpensive and digital flatbed scanners that I just need to take everything I care about, photo albums, documents, everything, take a picture of it and store it somewhere. That would be a really simple, not necessarily easy because you got to get all that stuff out, but it'd be a simple way to do that. You could just open up your photo album, take a picture of each page. And with today's high resolution cell phone cameras, send it up to Dropbox, you know, you're done. You've got, uh, you've got something you could easily reproduce if you needed to. So that was just one of my thoughts. Guys, what do you think about, you know, protecting your thing, knowing that it's going to be damaged? It's going to happen at some point, right? Maybe not in your lifetime, uh, but we're all going to incur some sort of disaster. Fire, flood, famine, zombie apocalypse, something's going to happen. So how do you protect your stuff? Miles, any thoughts? Well, I like portability. I like the idea of being as minimalistic with stuff as I can be, and then I am the absolute absolute worst liar of that. I mean, I love the idea of it, and I'm the worst executor on it. I have more stuff and junk than I probably need. Um, if I had a fire, a flood, a tornado, and lost everything, meh, big deal. I mean, it's an inconvenience. Financially, it could be a problem. It's not as important as my family. It's not as important as, you know, my pets. Um, I don't really care. Uh, stuff can go, come and go. I enjoy it as a distraction from life. <laughs> I enjoy it as a sense of uh, security, which is a false sense, to be absolutely honest. But I've traveled across the Pacific Ocean twice and moved my life and my family from one place to another. Um, it didn't hurt. It wasn't that disruptive. And at the end of the day, I learned something about myself and I adjusted to a changing world around me. And if there was ever anything that was valuable that I'd want to protect, it's probably those memories. And they're in my head anyway. So maybe I, I just need to wear a helmet. I don't know. So <laughs> just download your memories. Is That's Miles' advice. Uh, <laughs> don't be so reliant on your stuff. This is probably what I'm trying to say. If you can't live without your stuff, Look in the mirror and ask whether or not you're you're focusing on the right things. Well, because uh, let, let me offer some counterpoint to that. Uh, all right. The, the, the sort of thing that I'm talking about in my life right now, obviously there are important legal and financial documents that I would like to have. Those should be stored off-site in a safe deposit box. That would be the ideal uh, or an ideal uh, place to do it. But what I'm talking about is five generations of photo albums that I have down in the basement. Um, can I live without that? Sure. Would that be a terrible loss to the oral and, and pictorial history of my family? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I need to protect these sort of things, uh, for not for me, but for my family, for my children, my grandchildren, uh, my, my great grandparents who've been long gone, but are in those, those pictures, actually my wife's great grandparents that are in those pictures that offer a slice of life, um, that offer context to the future. My, my children's children are going to need some sort of rooting context 
and certainly certainly oral history can provide some of that but artifacts uh are are even more beneficial so those are the sorts of things i'm talking about protecting oh okay well yeah all right now the, to your point from before when i was moving in the 90s from australia to the u.s the one thing i did and it took me about maybe 10 days of just constant scanning was i took every single piece of paper which i thought i would need and i put it on a flatbed scanner and i scanned it and then i burnt a cd and i put it in my luggage and i brought it with me and that saved my bacon so many times um, and to this day, I'm a huge believer in digitizing everything. I've been in situations where I've literally been in a, a maybe a government office sitting on the other side of a, of a counter talking to somebody about getting a passport or about getting a, a maybe a copy of a birth certificate and they want some document and I can bring it up on my phone and show it to them. I got a mortgage doing this the other day. I had a guy on the other side of the desk and he wanted to see a tax return from some year ago go and i you know i booked this appointment for a week and i'm really you need that okay hold on a second i open up my phone i go into my own cloud thing that i've got i pull up the document i show it to him on the phone i email it to him he prints it out he goes fine here sign here you got your mortgage yeah and in, in the modern age those those are finally being accepted it, but it's really only in like the last five years that you could do that banks were right. not accepting those sort of things but but you're right if it's not digitized you don't have access to it and at the end of the day that was the important things that counted um and so i'm a big believer in digitization seth what are your thoughts man i don't know um i mean i like the idea of you know of taking the making the backup but also doing things to protect the originals uh you know and it and we've talked before, there's securability versus usability. Um, are, are you going to keep your things in whatever you keep them? Are you going to keep them in a waterproof container or a fireproof container or whatever proof container you happen to live in? You know, who cares if you keep all of your stuff in your basement if you haven't checked to make sure your sump pump works in the last five years? Um, if you live in a basement, you need a sump pump just in case something floods, you know, have it on and protect stuff. Do you store your stuff on the floor or do you at least put some type of shelving up to get it up off the floor and away from the rats? So prevention can go a long way to mitigating recovery. Now, again, there's always the, you know, nobody ever expected a hurricane to hit and then say, I'm going to hang out here for a while and I'm just going to dump rain, you know, so you can only prevent so much for that. But take a minute and prevent, think about what can I do to make sure I hold on to this? It's good to have a backup, but you know, what if I want to hold on to this particular thing? What can I do? And you know, your situations are different and unique, but take some time to think about that. And whatever you think about is very hard when you first think about it, but you begin to do it so much that it becomes habit and takes no time at all to do. You're like, I can never do that. Well, you're right. You could never do that. If you think you never can, you never will. But if you're like, man, that was really hard. Guess what? The next time you do it, it's not as hard. Then you don't even realize you're doing it. So, you know, put a little effort in on the front. We don't have to remember anything anymore because everything's on the cloud. So we can take time to be situationally, situationally aware of things and maybe 
that mitigates the recovery factor so to somewhat well and i wanted to talk about that your stuff is safe in the cloud uh unless you're using crash plan um in which case they've decided nah, they don't care about you anymore and this this isn't about crash plan this is about the fact that um there's a balance, you know, you talked about the balance between accessibility and security. There's also a balance between um, uh, letting somebody else host your data and making sure you store your own stuff. So, Miles, you have an own cloud, right? You have multiple copies of, the, of that across multiple locations. You probably mm-hmm. do. You own data centers. Most of us don't. We have a backup, uh, a hard drive sitting right next to this, the stuff that is being backed up. Um, and if we think we need an offsite version of it, we'll use something like Crash Plan or um, uh, uh, Carbonite or, as I just mentioned earlier, Dropbox. Any of those things could just decide to drop you. And and it's they're not bad guys. That's just the cycle of, of business. So, Seth, let's talk about this cloud-based uh, uh, Crash Plan thing going away, and then we'll discuss a little bit more from there. Yes, um, they used to be kind of geared towards consumers and everything and so now they've eliminated a lot of their plans that were consumer friendly and moved people up to their next highest tier again business decision they're giving warning um but the plan you have might go away and if you're somebody who doesn't review your plan periodically you could have had a great setup and you know i'm going to use I'm going to use Widget Storage Inc. and you know I'm going to buy the lifetime plan or whatever, and then you never check again. You lose your data. You go to look for it, and guess what? Widget went out of business two years ago. All your data belongs to nobody. Um, so yeah, cl- Crash Plan. What they did was they just said, oh, "We want more money. Um, if you want to keep your stuff with us, it's now going to cost you um, from sixty dollars a year up to like a hundred and twenty uh, to get a little bit more space." But so just be careful with what you're using and check to make sure that what you're using is still there. Yeah. I just this week I had this situation where I needed to recover some personal documents, you know, nothing legal, nothing uh, earth shattering, but some stuff that I had chosen to save. Um, I zipped them up, put them in an archive, threw them on a hard drive um, in my living room. I still have that hard drive. I still have the zip file. I tried to access it. The the file is corrupted. Uh, I can probably do some sort of forensics and get that back, and, and I will spend some time on it. But that's a case where I had a plan, but it didn't matter. Um, you know, there's the old saying, if you have only one copy of something, you don't have a copy of it. Uh, well, let's say if I had put that on uh, Dropbox and had it spread to five different computers, the odds are all of those copies would be corrupted. Um, because of the nature of replication. So you, you have to plan for the things that you can't plan for, which is, you know, Sisyphusian in its nature. You, you, can't, you can't plan for that which can't be planned for, but you can't not plan for that which can't be planned for. Right. It's funny, I had a conversation with a customer this week about that very thing. They'd asked me about a year ago to put together a, a fairly complicated, redundant data uh, disaster recovery uh, failover system for them and it was in another state and another data center so that if the main one went down they could fail over to the other one built that demonstrated it showed them it was working set up all the automated scripts to populate it every morning and it's been great and of course they haven't had a problem for a year so they forgot about it 
And along comes one guy who's a recent addition to their board of directors or something. And, and in some meeting, he, I don't know if it was a question of him just trying to make a name for himself or to try to show that he was on top of things. But he brought up this like, I want to see our disaster recovery plan. So I get this phone call haul in, into their office, sit down with them. Well, we need to talk about this disaster recovery plan. I'm like, yeah, why? We did this a year ago. Yeah, but we've forgotten all about it. I'm like, are you serious? This is not, the whole point of this isn't for technology to save your bacon when something goes wrong. It's for you to save your bacon to use technology when something goes wrong. And the most critical thing about any uh, DR plan like this is that you test it. Like every three months, you do a fire drill and you make sure it's working because when the day comes that you need it, that's when you're going to get the payoff. You spend all this amount of money with, with me and, and everybody else to put together these plans. And if you don't test it, what is the point? And so I walked away going, well, I'm not going to make any money telling you I've already done it and charge you on this. So you're on your own here. Just go and test your own plan. If you find a problem, I'll take care of it. But test it. And I think at the end of the day, that's really the underlying message here is that a DR plan, a backup is only as good as your willingness to test it. And if you don't test it, guarantee something in the world will change and it won't be there and working for you when you need it. Yeah, I've, I've referenced this uh, several times over the course of the 300 episodes. I feel like I say that a lot. I've, we've talked about this before. Yeah, in 300 episodes, yes, we've talked about a lot of things a lot of times. Uh, but um, uh, oh, I just blanked on his name. Uh, tech columnist for the New York Times. He's now works with Yahoo. Uh, little dark-haired dweeby guy. Did videos. Nothing. No, you anyway. got to narrow it down. I mean, you described uh, anyway, this, this tech columnist who's hopefully his name will come to me in a minute, uh, coined a phrase a while back. Uh, he said, uh, we don't need to be worrying about data storage. We need to be worrying about data movage. Um, because it doesn't matter where your stuff is that wherever that is, isn't safe. Um, in the sense of, uh, miles, that stuff you put on, on, on CD, um, may decay over time mm -hmm. or it may not it may just get to the point where there aren't cd players around anymore yeah you're um, right that's you moved know. it's moved on to different media right. 14 times since but yeah you're right i have one in my house one uh machine with a, D, a cd reader in it um and and, and just because it's not a thing anymore now right now i could i could walk away from here i could drive a few minutes away to the local best buy i could buy one but soon that's not going to be a thing if uh you know my wedding video from 1994 is on a VHS tape. Couldn't play it if I wanted to. You know, that was an important slice of my life there. It was important enough that we decided we wanted to pay a videographer to record it. Can't watch it. I would have to take that to some specialists or buy special equipment in order to watch that moment now. That is a piece of history that is gone because we didn't move it. We stored it safely. It is safe. It is secure. It is sound, but it can't be used. So we need to not focus on data storage. We need to focus on data movage. And that goes to testing your plan, right? If I'm going to go move my data, I have to make sure my data is is uh, in store first or intact first. The other thing, too, is that uh, the dynamics, even within the, the – and this is interesting. You brought up the point about crash plan. In the data storage serving space, the, the cloud – 
the financial dynamics of the cloud changes on a daily basis. What people forget is that there really are a, a whole bunch of factors which influence what the cost of operating might be for a Google or for a Facebook or a Microsoft Azure or, or whatever. And it's cost of power. It's the bandwidth and the cost of that bandwidth. And then there's the physical infrastructure costs and the management of that, which would be security and, and all the things that they need to do. Those things don't come cheap. And when you're in the first generation of moving everything from your, your data center and your business, which costs you a million dollars to build and a million dollars a year to run and whatever, and all of a sudden you can put it in the, quote, cloud, there's this perception that it's extremely cheap in the cloud and you don't have to take any responsibility to it and they'll look after you and everything will be just right. It, it isn't extremely cheap in the cloud. Power costs are enormous. And unless you're hosting in Iceland or something, you're going to be hit with some enormous power costs. And these are power costs that are very, very hard to offset with renewables. They, you know, you can't really generate that much power with renewable energy. Uh, maybe, maybe some guy's got a magic wand and can do it, but I don't know how to do it. Um, the cost of bandwidth is always increasing, and we've spoken about the different uh, ISP availability for residential homes and so on, and that, you know, if you get a monopolistic control, then they can price whatever they want. Well, they do that in the commercial space too. And these data centers, which have been offering free storage, free Google Drive, free this, free that, uh, come face-to-face -face with the economic reality very quickly that it is costing them an enormous amount of money to keep your data. And all of a sudden, they need to be paid because there's security costs for cybersecurity threats that they have to deal with all the time. There's the increasing cost of power. There's the increasing cost of bandwidth. And eventually, they're going to pass it on to you. And it will happen, you know, depends on how their PR is that they spin it off. It's either going to be a fiasco and it hits the press and they're the worst thing ever. Or they could do it incrementally where you don't feel it as much until you do. Um, Apple are really good about that. And uh, at the end of the day, don't live in the illusion that storing stuff in the cloud is free, cheap, safe, secure, the whole bit. You cannot have all of those things. You're going to have to pay money for something. And also, what happens when you can't get to the cloud? When Google, for example, flips a switch and shuts down an entire island nation, this is a thing that happened just this week. Yeah, and so, you know, this wasn't a case to where the, you know, somebody in some, you know, data... Um, whoever controls the gateway router, there's this thing called uh, the border gateway protocol that routers use to kind of talk to each other and say, hey, who are you next to? And can I get there versus three hops or four? And, you know, a lot of times these days it doesn't matter, but I can remember surfing the internet and destinations were unreachable because the protocols would only go, I think it was like, it was like 16 and then I think it doubled to 32 and then 64 and now it's up to like 48 billion and you can go around the world 10 times to hit the PC next door. But, you know, so you would refresh and it would choose another route and maybe you could get there. So uh, what happened was Google accidentally released an update and said, hey, this company, we got the shortest route to this company and everybody said, okay, every request I have to that ISP is going to go through Google. Well, Google didn't. And here's the thing, Google's like, 
oh crap, you know, somebody engineer said, hey, what happens if I hit this button? And there was an oh crap moment and they fixed it and it only took eight minutes, but because of the nature of the internet, it then took several hours for the for that change to work out of the system. And you think, well, it was only a few hours. Well, whenever you're a trading house and you make money on every trade that comes through, you know, you only make a couple of cents or a couple of bucks and you lose a day's worth of trades. You know, whenever you're a hospital and you're trying to get patient data for surgery and all of a sudden you can't access it, you know, it drops out the line before you and you're like, oh crap, what do I do now? You know, the ISP didn't do anything wrong. The customer of the ISP didn't do anything wrong. Google did something wrong and they fixed it within 10 minutes. I mean, you know, you can't really like, oh crap, I fixed it. And then I'm sorry, it took 10 minutes. You can't really complain because it didn't, you know, they weren't like AT&T who will argue with you for two years that it was your fault uh, and then say, oh, never mind, I fixed it. And then eight minutes, but because of the nature of routing tables and how they automatically update, it took the better part of a day for that mistake to work out of the system. So yeah, sometimes you can do everything right and something you have no control over makes it wrong. And that's that's the danger of trusting the cloud with your stuff. And, and you know, as Seth uh, said earlier, and I've routinely joked, I've, I've sold my higher f- brain functions to Google. I've just surrendered that. I no longer think I Google. Um, that that's, that's a funny little joke, but there's also a lot of reality in that. I don't know, other than my wife, who, who has had the same phone number for 15 years, I don't know any phone numbers in my family, including my children. I don't know them. I, got, I bought them. I paid for them. I read them every month on the bill. I don't know them. There was a time when I would have had to remember that, so I did. Now I don't have to, so I don't. And the the age of ease uh, means that we shunt those things off to other functions. We we uh, you know we memorize movie lyrics, uh, movie lines and and song lyrics instead of memorizing phone numbers. Now we're still using the same number of brain cells. We're just using them differently. Um, and you can, it's easy to get lulled into like the company you talked about, Miles, this sense of, of imperviousness and just, well, the geeks have that all, all that covered. Um, well, there, there's a large percentage of our audience that are geeks. You know, the truth, <laughs> you know, you don't have all that covered. I, I, I can't give too many details, but, um, uh, a company that, that I know, of uh, in a, in a, in a time not too distant, I'm really having to talk around this, um, had a situation where they were going to put a couple of redundant data centers. They, they were adding a, a second level of redundancy. They already had multiple data centers. They already had redundancy. They were going to add a second level of redundancy. During the install process, they actually not only broke their redundancy, but broke all routes to all data centers. Um, red flags went up. Things got fixed. It, it it was it was it was fixed. But that sort of stuff is happening all day, every day, all over the world. And it could be the very moment you need your data, the very moment you're standing in front of a loan officer trying to pull something off of of Dropbox, and you can't do it. You have to plan for the thing that can't be planned for. I think the other thing which adds to that is that there's this whole. I mean, what you're talking to is is very true. It's the false sense of security 
which is something that we culturally in the United States don't take as much of a the buck stops on my desk kind of attitude. We think that when something goes bad, Google will help us as it's in the cloud. When something goes bad, my bank will make sure that my funds are okay. And if, if my somebody, you know, uh, steals money on my credit card, they'll, they'll make it right. They'll just negate all the funds and I won't get charged anything. These are um, possible scenarios, but nothing better than that. Um, when something goes bad, you're on your own. <laughs> so if that's the case, how about just protecting yourself by just being a little more prepared? And that doesn't mean you have to be a prepper, but it means that at least you can go through some sort of a regular routine or some sort of a drill, some sort of a process that says, look, what are my biggest risks? How do I mitigate those things? How do I recover from something bad? What do I really truly value? that I can't afford to lose and how do I protect the most important things and then work all the way down to the collection of Doctor Who, you know, figurines you've got or whatever. I mean, work it out and prioritize it that makes sense for you and do and do something that actually assumes a disaster once in a while. At least think that way and know you're not a prepper, know you're not, you know, a, a crazy lunatic. Do it. And you, what the day will come when you, like Mr. Aquadam in, in Houston, can stand there proudly say, I got this covered. And if, if the more of those success stories we hear in the news, the better for everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but I'm willing to bet this wasn't the first time he'd ever set up that Aquadam. He didn't, you know, he was standing out in the July heat on a dry day during a drought pumping thousands of gallons into a rubber tube at some point while people mocked him and and called him an idiot he he would have you know he would have had to this is too complex a thing to set up for under pressure for the very first time so not only did he you know drive to louisiana to pick up this thing and load it on his trailer and drive it back and pay eight grand for it but he tested it he set it up he knew where it was and he knew how it was uh, uh how it needed to be set up when the time came this this is as I, I started to say as critical. I think it's probably the most critical part of it because you can hire somebody to create a plan for you. But when the time comes to execute that plan, Miles, you're not there for those people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't you can't hire somebody there when when the storm comes. So whatever your plan is, a have a plan, b work the plan, and c test the plan. Otherwise, none of this matters. So true. I mean, the world isn't Judge Judy. It's not like, well, if something goes wrong, I'll just sue them in court. No, it doesn't. <laughs> You're in control of your own protection. So take that control and be proud to have it and do something with it to make sure that you're in good shape. Yeah, you know, like in Texas, there's this um, there's a quote unquote gas shortage. There's really not. A couple of refineries had some service interruptions uh, during the flood. And, you know, just whenever there's thousands of cars that aren't normally there, a station's going to run out of fuel. But because social media struck and, oh, my gosh, there's a gas station, there's a gas shortage. So people are driving to 
um, you know, they're driving to the nearest station to fill up their car, their gas tank. And people are even like using stuff that you shouldn't be putting gas in and putting gas in it. So guess what happened? Now there's a gas shortage and overnight the price shot up 20, 25 cents, at least in my area of the state. You know what would have prevented that? If people had a five gallon gas can at home that they kept full and every month or so poured that in their car and went and filled it up again then we wouldn't have this problem because everybody else would just say, oh, I'll wait a couple of days to buy fuel and then get back, you know, and I'll use this can. So, but, you know, there was this quote unquote problem that really wasn't there and they made it a problem by everybody changed their attitudes and went and hoarded gas. And so now in a week or so, less than a week, there's going to be a gas glut because everybody's going to be saying, crap, I don't need 50 gallons of gas at home. I only drive 10 miles a week and you know, what am I going to do? And so People are stupid. When weird stuff happens, people get weirder. That's something you can count on. When the situation hits, you hit the situation, and it's you better be prepared for that. Do you guys keep um, like some canned goods in the pantry in the case of these sorts of things? I don't keep specific emergency rations, but at any point in time, there's a week's worth of food in my pantry just by the way we do business. You know, we buy more than we can eat. Every time we go to the store. So mm-hmm. yes and no. I mean, there's there's a case of water in my garage right now because the person who was supposed to carry it in got tired and set it down and stayed in the garage since July. <laughs> um, so, so yes, I'm a prepper accidentally because I have lazy children. Yeah, in yeah, Arizona, a little extra yeah, sorry, food, but I'm not like a prepper with storehouses and buried, you know, caches. Right. See, in Arizona, uh, being a desert, our biggest criteria is water i mean if we lost water we'd be sol on that one so what 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 you'll find here is that at every supermarket there's usually one of those vending machines where you can fill five gallons of water for like a buck somewhere so uh what we do um and i think a lot of people here do do is we buy five or ten five gallon water bottles and fill them and just rotate through them so there's always a supply of water in the house, but uh, you know you you just re- maybe you keep three of them always on hand. When you get down to that, you sort of re- repeat and just you know re- 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 replenish it. Um, it's it's great because at any point in time, if for some reason there was a drought, the water was shut off. Living in this temperature, you can't afford that. I've, I'm fine. I've got bottles and bottles. I've got gallons of water. I could get through probably two three weeks. With the amount of water we've got now, probably wouldn't bath that much, but you know, <laughs> um, there's always grey water. You could always work that out. But you know, w- this is another thing: is just to have some sort of backup supply. But don't even don't freak out that you have to have a bunker full of this sort of stuff. Make it part of your regular, like like you were saying with food. If your regular food routine is to have a week's worth always in the pantry, don't wait until you get down to nothing before you refre- replenish the pantry. Keep that base level deposit in the in the pantry of maybe a week's worth of food or a, a week's worth of water or something. And when you get down to that, that's when you replenish. Yeah. It's all about having a plan. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Miles, I don't think we're going to have time to talk about your free nest setup. We'll move that to the storage 
discussion because I want to hear about it. I want to hear about your own cloud setup too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Google that anybody uh, or Bing it or Yahoo it. Uh, is Yahoo <laughs> still a thing? I don't even know. Yeah, but they use um, Bing, so they're just okay. a different front end. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, it's a it's your own. It's a roll your own version of Dropbox, which is great if you've got you know redundant data storages across the country as miles just happens to uh so really the best plan is to get to know somebody like miles and say hey can i can i buy some space in your data center um but the i I really i've i thought about this years ago i've been meaning to do it it's one of those things i've been meaning to do for a decade is find a, a a geek savvy friend of mine that lives 20 miles away at least right I set up a hard drive in his house. He sets up a hard drive in my house. We run our syncs over the internet nightly to each other's data. 20 miles is far enough away that most likely a single event won't take out both of our stuff. I know lots of geeks. I could have done that a thousand times in the last decade. I've done it zero times. So all of my stuff is either in my living room or on the cloud where I'm trusting somebody else to take care of it. Um, Bad plan. Own cloud is a better plan. You know, I've, I know people, I know Miles in Arizona, Seth in Texas, you know, I, I know people in, in Maryland, I, I, and I could ship them a hard drive. You don't want to sh- do the initial backup over the internet. It's just painfully slow. But for a few bucks, I could ship them a hard drive and say, you know, just host this in, in your living room, if you don't mind, or in your basement. And I know lots of people who would, and I would do that. You send me your stuff, I'll store it for you. But nobody does that, and it would just be a simple thing to do if we all decided to do it. You might find that changes. Um, I was looking at – we spoke last last uh, episode about uh, this DTube video thing right. that was that YouTube thing. And, the, and I mentioned that they used this IPFS uh, storage mechanism and I, that I didn't know anything about it. Well, I spent a little bit of time this week researching it and understanding it, and I'm not sure if it's yet – obvious to even anybody less than a superpower hardcore geek because it's very complicated and it it sort of suggests to me like it's a protocol at its very early infancy and if you understand the bits and bytes of things you might get it but no one's built yet the killer app that sits on top of it but looking at the way it works it does kind of suggest that we might be able to store our data around the internet, kind of like how BitTorrent does it, where everybody has a little bit of it, a little piece of it, and and any one node can go down without affecting the entirety of the whole thing. And uh, I think it's got promise. I'm not sure how many years away it's going to be before this becomes just a natural thing and we don't think about it anymore. But you may find that with uh, decentralization and uh this technology of having little pieces of it spread all over the internet that possibly you can put all your stuff out there and it wouldn't matter if your node went down. Right. And ideally you want it encrypted so that the person you trust to host the the hard drive doesn't have access to it. Yeah. You know, Um, I did that. I I did that for a while. Uh, Many years ago I had was one of the first people I knew to have a DSL connection and a friend of mine brought his web server to my house and I plugged it into my, um, office um, and hosted his, you know, family web server because he wanted something offsite. Um, you know, we, it's funny, the more technologically advanced we get, the less human we get sometimes. Yep. 
All right, so if I were going to wrap this up in a nice, neat little bow, it's interesting. This never, this didn't go the direction I thought it would, but then we never do. Um, <laughs> the we didn't talk about specific techniques, otherwise, other than maybe digitized stuff. But the the important thing that came about here is have a plan, work the plan, test the plan. Most people have a plan. Not many people work the plan. Even fewer people test the plan. Whatever that plan is, whether it's you know jarring pickles in your basement or buying an aqua dam or setting up an own cloud server have a plan work the plan test the plan and that's great digital or analog advice exactly good stuff guys as always um the smartest person in the room is the room and you guys make my room smarter um so this is the part of the show where i tell you what uh, how to tell me what you think if you want to be like batman uh, you can leave us a voicemail over at uh, 559-I-AM-OP, and, uh, or you can send me the audio file if you want. Um, I generally ask that people keep that under a minute. Batman, though, he got three minutes because he's Batman. He gets to do that because um, I'm afraid of him. Um, <laughs> you could also go to elementopi.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page, fill out the world's uh, – answer the world's hardest capture, fill out the form there, uh, and uh, and we'll reply to you. And I may beat you down like I did the, the listener in last episode. You know I do it in love. Um, intellectual honesty and respect are the, the the hallmarks of this show. That doesn't necessarily mean I have to agree with you, nor that you have to agree with me. In fact, almost everybody who writes in doesn't agree with me. Uh, it would be nice if somebody wrote into it who agreed with me. Just make me feel better. Just going to say that. Uh, and also pay me, people. Patreon.com slash Element OP. Now, Seth, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. On September the 2nd, 1993, the world's first primitive web search engine is started. Known as the W3 Catalog or the CUI WWW Catalog, it was started by Oscar something or other at the University of Geneva <laughs> in Switzerland. This search site, I can barely speak English, y'all. When you want me to pronounce a name in English, but then you want me to pronounce a foreign name, something or other. It sounds closer than any approximation of that spelling I would try. So this search site lasted for about three years before more modernized search engines began appearing. Unlike later search engines like AliWeb, which attempted to index the web by crawling over the accessible content of websites, the W3 catalog exploited the fact that many high quality, manually maintained lists of web resources were already available. W3 catalog simply mirrored these pages, reformatting the contents into individual entries and provided a Perl-based, yes, that's Perl-based front end to enable dynamic querying. At the time, CGI did not yet exist, so the W3 catalog was implemented as an extension has an extension of Tony Saunders' Plexus web server implemented in Perl, and it was retired December 8th, 1996. And that all started this week in history. And now back to you, Mark. And the thing that you talked about there that doesn't even exist most people don't even know what that is because they're using JavaScript and HTML5 now. Um, so the thing that obsoleted this thing is now obsoleted. Amazing. And that was 1993. That was not terrible. 25 years ago, under 24. Mark, we were um, out of high school. That could have been us. That, that's, <laughs> that's right. If we were smarter in Swiss. Yeah. Um, uh, it's It's just... It's weird as you get older, you start hearing birth dates that you remember. You know, when you're when you're 15, you don't remember anybody's birth date. 
When you're 30, you remember the birth dates of some people you know. When you're 45, you remember the birth, date, birth dates of most people you know. Um, and so now I'm hearing your internet history and thinking, I remember that. I was there for that. <laughs> um, I'm old. I'm old. Uh, all right. Yep. Next up, Seth, what do you have to cause me to lower my productivity this week on this short week as we celebrate labor by not laboring? Well, uh, so that you look like a better hiring option. You know, Mark, since you have abandoned so many of your long ago, um, fastly held principles, I think maybe sooner or later you'll abandon this pay for what you like thing. And this is GO90. You spell out the word go, then you use the number nine, the number zero dot com. And this is a free website to view series and movies. You're not getting top run, run stuff, but they do have original content. This originally started has Verizon. Um, attempt to compete with Netflix, kind of whatever. You you can sign up, but it isn't. You can't sign up and pay them. This is an ad supported uh, way to watch older things. I came across this because I was thinking about watching Babylon Five, um, and I was just like, so I just Google Babylon Five, and this website came up, and I said, "What's this?" And I was like, "Ah," so you know, I just clicked on something and watched a little bit of it and you know so this is legitimate this isn't like some of the sites that are out there that allows you to watch the feed of somebody who snuck a camera into a movie theater to get the latest movies this is you know legit supported through advertising stuff that's out there um good stuff bad stuff it's just another site for resources because honestly i don't think there was enough of them on the internet I need I needed to know about Van Damme's The Replicant. Um, this you've done me a public service. Thank you for that. No, you're welcome. If you want to watch animated Planet Hulk or Doctor Strange, or if you want to watch uh, um, TV series that I've never heard of before, um, this it looks like the place to go. This really is the kind of thing where you could burn hours and hours. And get no redeeming value out of it whatsoever. Yeah. And like I say, apparently, if you have Verizon and you watch this, it doesn't count against your data cap. At least that used to be the case. Whether it is still the case or not, I don't know. But that's some of the stuff I found online. Because, you know, I wanted to make sure I wasn't, you know, going to pwn my computer before I went there. And it seems to be a legitimate website. And if you're in Chrome running uBlock Origin, you see nothing. <laughs> Not only is it ad supported, it is ad required. Ah. Well, there so, you go. So you, you see go. you're paying, but you're not paying in money. You're paying in, you know, good user experience. I, I don't know. Like I say, I, I clicked the movie and it came right up and it started playing. I don't know if there would be commercial breaks in it because I stopped about five or six minutes in. So. Cool. Veronica Mars, every season, every episode. I hear that was a thing at some point. So check it out. Miles, Seth, thanks for hanging out with us. As always, uh, I appreciate the fact that you are the best hosts that I can afford on what I get to pay you, which is nothing. And so uh, thanks for listening, everybody. That's it for this episode of The Geek Rant. <laughs>